0: Welcome to New Books in Environmental Studies. I'm your host, Katie McEwen. Today I'm speaking with John Hadley, the author of Animal Property Rights A Theory of Habitat Rights for Wild Animals, which was published in 2015 by Lexington Books. In this book, Hadley suggests a novel approach to addressing habitat and biodiversity loss, the extension of liberal property rights to wildlife. His theory rests on two fundamental principles. The first is a guardianship system. And the second is the use of territorial behavior to circumscribe the boundaries in which those property rights exist. This is a book that will be important to people working on issues of human-wildlife conflict, biodiversity protection, and also those of us who are just interested in thinking more about our relationship with non-human animals and the institutions um, that govern that relationship. John, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I really appreciate you being here.
1: Thank you Katie, it's good to be here.
0: Um, I'd just like to start out uh, by asking you a little bit about your background.
1: All right, well I grew up in Sydney. Uh, My parents were not sort of academically minded but they were animal lovers. They had uh, cats. Now we were cat people but we also had Neighborhood dogs would come and visit the house and, and my parents would feed the wild birds like cockatoos and lorikeets and magpies and what have you. So I think even though they weren't greenies by any um, definition of that term, uh, their, my upbringing, uh, with my parents was important for kind of shaping how I think about animal and environmental issues. Probably the most, uh, important decision that my parents had on my, my uh, thinking was when they were married back in the 50s, Sydney was um, opening up areas of land quite close to the city. And these uh, parts of the city were, if they weren't remnant vegetation, remnant bushland, they had certainly only been logged selectively. So my parents got this Um, bush block they built a house on it in the late 50s and we grew up surrounded by uh, a reserve kind of place it was wasn't opened up to walking even it was just totally wild bush so wild animals were always coming into the house like possums and flying foxes and snakes the cats would bring snakes in but my friends and I would often just go wandering through the bush during the day it was Common for us just to disappear in the morning and come back in the evening after spending all day in the bush. So I think uh, growing up where I did, near the bush, influenced my thinking. But also, I guess my uh, the fact that I had pets in the house, and pets were seen as part of the the family, if you like, kind of put me in this difficult position philosophically. In that it kind of I could see the Uh, attraction of both positions, what we might call an animal ethics position and an animal rights position. So I was interested in, when I was at university thinking about what I was going to study and and focus on in my PhD, I was interested in looking at the debate between those two perspectives. So interestingly though, um, we still have contact with the family home and there is actually a population of water dragons, which is an Australian lizard, it's about, I guess, a meter long from nose to tail. And a population of dragons has been living in the backyard for as long as I can remember. Hmm. And even though in the book the the focus is very much on more so mammals, because they are seen as kind of having the strongest claim, at least as far as animal ethics is concerned, uh, when the family finally does sell this block, it seems obvious to me or intuitively uh, reasonable to say that this family of water dragons are stakeholders in the decision. Uh, We have similar kind of uh, legislation governing trees, uh, native vegetation clearing if you want to modify trees in your property where I live, you have to get council permission. So I think... You know, parts of or the, the rationale of the book that animals are stakeholders when humans modify habitat and that their interests are important and impacted by habitat destruction Is something that I perhaps picked up quite a while ago uh, Living where I did next to
0: bushland hmm. And what was the kind of uh, immediate Influence, you know, why why specifically did you choose to apply property rights um, to fight against habitat loss, biodiversity decline, or um, otherwise kind of incorporate uh, wildlife as as stakeholders in, in particular locations?
1: Yeah, well, so I guess while I was developing an interest in animal ethics, I had also finished a research project on property rights and looking at environmental limits to property rights. So there is an important property right an uh, important principle within the property rights literature, known as the Lockean proviso. This is a principle attributed to the 17th century English philosopher John Locke, and he basic the basic idea of the principle is that people may acquire parts of land um, for themselves, land that was hitherto unowned or held in common, so long as they, in his words leave as nothing as good for others. So this expression, leaving as nothing as good for others, has been seen as a kind of acknowledgement by people who support private property that non-owners, people who have used land before or have an interest in that land, need to be considered by land management decisions and need to be considered when owners are making land management decisions. So, as I was developing interest in animal ethics, I had just finished a project looking at that, and it occurred to me that, uh, you know, what had not really been explored in animal ethics was the significance of habitat and the idea of access to habitat as an animal right or a strong interest of animals. So, I see myself, I guess, in the animal ethics side of my work as a second generation. Theorists, So the first generation people like Peter Singer and Tom Regan, those those big names, philosophers like that, kind of put animals on the radar or put them on the map, so to speak. And then the task for the next generation of theorists was to say, okay, well, what follows from that? You know, if animals are important enough to think about rights, which particular rights uh, is it firstly logically possible or logically meaningful to extend to them? And then, you know, what should we give them or what should we extend to them? What moral case is there to extend to them? So the book, I think, is more focused towards that first project, like Mm. looking at property rights and how we understand the concept of property rights. Is it logically possible to extend it to animals? And then uh, afterwards or after we, we work worked through that problem, then the question is, well, um, what society, or, or is there a moral case to extend property rights to animals? Yeah. And in the book I give kind of two sets of moral considerations, one based on the animals themselves, their, their usage of the environment, their usage of their habitat to satisfy their basic needs, and then that second approach what I call the indirect or the pragmatist approach is just the idea that, you know, this could be a useful tool or animal property rights could be thought of as a useful tool for addressing problems in a new um, and potentially useful way. And, um, you know, in the process of just looking at it like a tool, a lot of the kind of conceptual problems associated with the logic of property rights um, don't even arise so combining the two kind of interests that I had, the animal ethics interest with the environmental interest, kind of led to this this project.
0: And let, uh, sorry, go ahead.
1: Well, I was going to say that there's also a kind of a a deep um, philosophical disagreement about both sides, uh, or between both sides, and about the nature of what we might call the moral significance of animals and nature, or what we say in philosophy, the intrinsic value. This is called the location problem, which is what I refer to in the book. So your um, listeners might be aware that animal rights is a very individualistic approach. It, It kind of locates value or moral significance in individuals in virtue of some kind of psychology. It might be simply that they're able to suffer or it might be a more sophisticated kind of understanding of psychology that they can act to satisfy their desires or what have you. Environmentalism is very different. It's what what we call a holistic theory. So instead of the individuals being the focus of value, it's the whole community. So it's a bit like a distinction you may have heard of in political philosophy between liberals and communitarians. One side values individuals, the other side and value society. So in the animal rights environmental ethics debate, that kind of uh, philosophical dispute plays out a lot. So I thought, well, maybe I can't solve that philosophical dilemma or solve that philosophical question, but I can at least bring both sides together uh, around a common cause, habitat protection and... Animal rights people ought to welcome the idea of a habitat protection theory, which is what animal property rights is, because they don't want humans interfering with animals. And then likewise environmentalists ought to be interested in this idea as well, because it um, potentially at least stands as a constraint on human or unsustainable human development. So whilst uh, I was... In a setting aside, or whilst I do set aside an important um, but abstract argument in philosophical theory, I nonetheless kind of address the political concerns of both sides as well.
0: So let's get into the mechanics a little bit about how animal property rights um, works. So you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, you know, this challenge between the kind of the collective, uh, the ecosystem or environmental ethics versus the individual mm-hmm. versus animal rights. So as mm-hmm. we know, um, and as you describe in your book, though, there's discussions going on about whether or not non-human animals could be described as persons. Um, you state very clearly mm-hmm. that there's not a legal basis for this. So how then can um, can animals themselves um, claim these property rights? Through what mechanisms?
1: Okay. So uh, if you think about uh, cognitively impaired human beings, for example, so my mother has dementia. Uh, Her property affairs are managed by a financial manager. uh, When any decisions arise to be made about what to do with Her existing property, obviously she can't make those decisions herself, and it goes to a guardian to make that decision. Uh, I think a similar kind of uh, situation can be extended to the animal habitat protection uh, situation. So if you think about, uh, say, somebody, some landholder wants to, I don't know, um, clear a section of woodland in order to put in some kind of uh, uh, dwelling or some kind of uh, structure say a farm shed of some kind right and let's say there's a population of uh, mammals residing in this uh, remnant bushland say i don't know koalas or something like that uh at present there would be perhaps uh, regional or uh, council-wide holistic legislation in which the interests of the trees, say, are taken into consideration. If the animal is in an endangered species, a member of an endangered species, perhaps there is also endangered species legislation which would cover the interests of, let's say, their koalas. But if that was... uh, mammal of an overabundant population or a population that wasn't, in, wasn't endangered, then basically it's up to the benevolence of the owner to deal with them in some way. So what I'm suggesting is that as an additional, I guess, step in existing property-based habitat conservation uh, regimes, there ought to be a guardianship step in the process. So the farmer would have to be, um, be involved in some kind of mediation, uh, perhaps face-to-face or maybe just uh, you know, on paper even, address the concerns of a guardian who is representing the resident population at risk. As I said before, there's already constraints on what the owner may do, if we're talking about liberal democracies at least, I'm not sure about Africa. But Um, probably in a similar situation in Africa. So what I'm kind of suggesting is that all animals, irrespective of what species they're in, simply because of their interest in using the goods concerned, goods meaning the native um, the bushland or the the trees or the the water or the, the grasses or whatever it is that the particular species is using, Um, simply in virtue of them having an interest in that they ought to be considered in this land management process. Now everyone says, oh that's an outrageous idea, Um, it's it's too far removed from what we're used to. Well I don't think it is. I mean there's existing legislation now that's for endangered species and trees. Why not just extend it to any animals that are stakeholders here? People said, well, isn't this similar to what we have now? You know, we have national parks, what have you. A concern there is that the individual population, or the, indeed the, the individuals within the population, their interests are too far removed from the concerns of the person. What we need is somebody who is actually representing the particular species rather than approaching the problem as one of the holistic environmental problem. Um, so, it's even though it may have a holistic benefit, and I hope it does, the fact that there's an appointed individual representing the population kind of bolsters the case within that bigger, or, or puts the animals in a position, if you like, to speak with a stronger voice within that kind of planning approval process.
0: And as you yeah. mentioned, um, these guardians aren't just uh, guardians for a particular species, but particular members of a species on a particular area of land. Um, could
1: you... Yeah, could well, it, it depends. So, so you know, some populations will be quite small, so it may need to be that the guardian is just representing a single animal or a, a small group of animals. As I say in the book, in cases when... You know, there are several populations at risk, different species uh, at risk, when they are crossing into different... uh, when the uh, land management decision has impacts on rival property owners on many different numbers of species, we're going to need some kind of efficient way of representing those interests as if they were represented by a single guardian. I don't think it would be possible when there's a lot of animals at stake, it would be too cumbersome, Mm. it would be too much of a lawyer's banquet. But we ought to be able to get some kind of uh, representation at the group level. But the same basic structure would remain, that there is a guardian who speaks for the animals at risk and this person is independent in a way that under existing kind of protected area systems or in existing planning approval systems, there's kind of political considerations that get in the way or holistic environmental considerations that get in the way of promoting the interests of that specific population. so it's um you know in some cases it will be straightforward, but in say with the water dragons and in the case of my parents. Property, but in the complicated cases, many species overlap. We would need to find some kind of mechanism. But the basic idea is the same that uh, we need an independent guardian within that kind of planning approval system. We have them now, like in the Mumbiji um, uh, M- irrigation area in New South Wales. We have like, community representatives who sit on kind of water advisory bodies along with landholders um, who are charged with kind of representing community concerns about sustainability or the environment. So it's, it's a bit like that system, but also sitting at that table would be a guardian for the animals being put at risk by the water usage of the irrigation be your gates. Uh, so that would be the idea.
0: and another important aspect of it that you mentioned is um this focus on territorial behavior. so as mm. um, as someone who studies national parks, I'm aware of how the boundaries of national parks don't always coincide with the movements of a particular mm. species. So um, mm. can you tell me about how what would about territorial behavior being used as a guide for determining the boundaries or limitations of these property rights or rights to natural goods in a particular habitat.
1: Yeah. So if you think about a particular uh, land manager who wants to modify habitat in some way, we need to know which particular species are being impacted upon. So there would need to be uh, space in this proposal for ecologists or evidence from ecologists to... um, uh, Identify which of the species at risk. There may be particular animals who live on the property but are not actually at risk by this particular land management decision. They don't their territory does not cross over into this area. Uh, likewise, there may be animals who are going to be impacted who are not residing on the property. They may be migratory species or something like that. So I think you know, in terms of thinking about the basic structure of the theory, the territorial behaviour is important simply for identifying the stakeholders and the decisions which are putting the stakeholders at risk. So, you know, um, in thinking about uh, territorial behaviour of animals and uh, you know, there are some views in property theory that kind of the acquisition of property by humans, or, or the kind of behaviour that humans exhibit around property and ownership, is part of their natural behaviour. So, I, I think um, you know it's a nice kind of way of thinking about how animal property rights may actually be a way of uh, a more sustainable way of determining where property boundaries ought to be, not not such an ecologically arbitrary way. And of course, they're going to cross over um, human property boundaries as well. So, um, territorial behaviour is very important. Most importantly for identifying the species of risk, but also for the land management decisions, which are going to have a particular impact upon uh, the the uh, animals. So, there's that kind of two key elements to the theory, which um putting forward. I think it's the easiest way to think about it. Uh, Also importantly is, you know, whilst territorial determination is a a contested concept within um, conservation biology, it meshes nicely with uh, public policy and and planning regimes. You know, evidence from ecologists is frequently used to um, in the evaluation of planning proposals, uh, the identification of high conservation value areas, you know, of areas in which it's it's, um, possible to log particular species of trees or whatever. So I thought that was also a way of kind of connecting up my abstract theory, or my theory in the abstract, with kind of a credible mechanism that is used in existing land management systems
0: and thinking through kind of the theory as it exists kind of in the abstract before we get to some of the pragmatics of it can you talk to me a little bit about uh, the justification for animal property rights um, and its basis on uh, property theory more broadly and which property theories it's rooted in
1: okay so you know part of the I guess the philosophical interest in property rights is the logical question what is a property right? Uh, what does an owner look like? Logically, do animals fit this mould? If you like, uh, I think it's very important for to establish the credibility of this idea to work with the existing theory. Like we, we ought not um, create this entirely new institution, or um, we ought not to find unfamiliar or um, unique grounds for property rights, we ought to look at the established kind of grounds for property rights and then see whether or how best animals can satisfy them. So the orthodox theory, or what I call in the book in a traditional liberal property rights theory, is not a very good fit for animals. Traditional property rights theory is is what we might call a person centred theory that is a property owner is seen as an individual who can engage in some kind of desert deserving behavior can act in accordance with a kind of uh, rationale for property can buy and sell goods can get can engage in relations of commercial exchange can manage property in that kind of way and you know clearly if that's our kind of template for who is entitled to property and what a property owner looks like, then animals are not going to be a very good fit. So if you think about um, the most influential kind of justification for property, and I should say here we're talking about the original acquisition of property, we're not talking about property transferred from one person to another, we're talking about original acquisition. you know, if you came across some um, uh, unowned land, a group of people came across some unowned land, who would get to have a particular parcel of that land for their own exclusive use? Uh, that was the question that John Locke, the philosopher I was talking about before, was trying to address. And he said, well, whoever mixes their labour with the land, right, whoever uses the land, Industriously, kind of leaves a bit of themselves in the land. Right? Property kind of becomes a part of the person, on the traditional view. Now, seems like a a, um, a wacky idea, but it's really um, anyone who accepts the kind of notion of desert that you know people deserve kind of reward for effort for being either creative or industrious in some way, that is engaging in some kind of exertion in order to achieve a goal, is kind of buying into Locke's theory. Right? I mean environmentalists might um, object to the idea that land can be owned at all, right? Is a suitable thing to be owned at all. But nonetheless, you know, I suspect even they would accept that dessert is warranted in some respects, unless you were a kind of, a <coughs> say, a Marxist who didn't, who didn't think dessert was a coherent concept at all, then you're kind of accepting Locke's rationale. Mm. So the idea is that the, the would-be owner, if they mix their labour with the land, they're entitled to exclusive possession of it, so long as they leave enough and it's good for others. So then the question is, can animals mix their labour in the right kind of way. Uh, in the book I say, you know, uh, I give a, a kind of a, with a heavy heart, I say no. I think when you think about even the most industrious or seeming industrious species, say a beaver, right, who, you know, they break logs, they, they dig channels and they float the logs to the dam site, what have you. If any species is going to ha- go close to demonstrating that kind of industriousness, it's going to be a beaver. But even in the beaver case, when you think about it carefully, right, is the beaver putting, him, putting himself out? Right? Is the building of the dam a sacrifice for the beaver? Because that's really where the dessert associated with exertion, um, the normative significance of that dessert or the moral significance of that dessert comes from. Exertion is important because people are choosing to put themselves out. I suggest it's debatable, sure, with a beaver, but not many other species. So I've had a um, there's a paper out just recently criticising me on this score. Somebody thinks. Young scholar Josh Milburn from Queens in Canada, he wants to develop this labour argument. Well, I hope he does, Um That further, I think it's a really interesting debate. But I I guess my philosophical strategy is to play things safe and find a safer basis for animal property rights, not labour. The other rival property justification, the traditional view, is first occupancy. So if you're there first, it's yours. But I think, you know, even though animal uh, ownership or animal presence on natural areas may Um, predate some human settlement or whatever, when you look at um, first occupancy, it too is desert-based. Because somebody could, as I say in the book, someone could fall out of the sky and end up on a piece of land first. And simply because they fell out of the sky doesn't seem like a good enough reason for them to have exclusive possession of that land. It turns on the significance of first occupancy also turns on what they plan to do with it. So then, if we're not going to go first occupancy and labour, is there a basis for animals other than that? And so, in property theory, the concept of basic needs was held up by um, Aquinas, the famous Catholic philosopher, as being a morally significant concept in thinking about how property should be managed. Now, Aquinas, even Aquinas, though, was not saying that basic needs entitles an individual to ownership. Rather, what he was saying is that the basic needs of everyone need to be met. A credible theory of property needs to be satisfy that condition so i suggest given that basic needs are a part of how we understand animal welfare like most countries have animal welfare legislation so basic needs is kind of an established concept in terms of animals the the strongest way to justify animal property rights is with reference to basic needs so animals use the habitat or the natural resources they're in trees shrubs grasses rocks water etc they use those goods to satisfy their basic needs now that gives them an interest in that habitat now because that interest is important enough to cross a threshold of significance to qualify for a right, I think it's fair to say that they have a right to that habitat. Now, because property rights, by definition, as an instrument, a legal instrument, regulate access to land and natural resources, then any right we give animals to habitat will be a property right. (coughs) So that's another kind of aspect that uh, Josh Milburn has criticised me on. He thinks this is not a bona fide property right. But I think that's a narrow way of understanding property rights. Property rights uh, include instruments much broader than just those that traditional Lockean picture. Insofar as the right I'm identifying regulates access to and usage of land, then I think it's fair enough to call this property right, insofar as the stakeholder is an animal. It's an animal property, right? Um, but in terms of the traditional justifications of property, labor and first occupancy, animals are not a good fit, or at least needs to be demonstrated as yet that animals have the kind of psychology that makes predicating dessert to them a meaningful exercise. I would I would be very happy if that was the case, but I just think it's it's not a very strong argument at this stage. And in addition to
0: being safer, say, than a Lockean or a labor-based um, justification for anim- for property rights, this needs-based mm. argument or basic needs argument, another aspect of that that I think is quite compelling that you mentioned um, briefly in the book is that it overcomes this anthropocentric scope of the tragedy of the commons argument, which is very much mm. obviously focused on, on human needs um, and human mm. access to, to resources. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so so if you, if you think about traditional property theory, and you go back to the 16th century, there's this, there's this concept of the initial patrimony. And there the idea was that, you know, God created the world and he left the earth to humans in common for human usage. And uh, for purpose of use, God had a plan and the industrious person was acting in accordance with God's plan. So obviously if you you lock in property theory to the 15th or 16th century then animals are going to be excluded because they didn't God did not include animals as part of the relevant class of would be property owners. But I think in the book now in you know in less of religious times, that kind of initial patrimony story of everyone having a stake in how our land is managed, the earth being finite and everyone having a stake in it, has kind of given way to the tragedy of the commons. The idea that, yes, we still all have an investment we still all have a stake in what happens to finite natural resources. So I think, you know, in terms of responding to that problem, it's time to think about animals as also being stakeholders in that situation. Maybe it was kind of theoretically respectable to exclude animals from being stakeholders in that situation, but now it's not so. I mean, um, they feature in legislation around the world, they're a source of fascination for people, people have got pets. You know, people like to go and look at them in zoos and on safaris and what have you. Like, they're just functioning as members of our community, so to speak, as stakeholders. So we don't need to argue about their legitimacy as stakeholders. So, you know, I, I guess part of the second generation approach to this book was that I didn't really need to make the case for animals. I just kind of take it as established that they're already in the property system, if you like, because they are recognised, their interests are reflected in endangered species legislation, in animal welfare legislation, and indeed in people's own kind of behaviour. So the tragedy of the commons is the idea, similar to the founding assumption of property theory, that everyone has a stake in finite resources and You know, people who own land, people who manage it, need to take into consideration the interests of people uh, who are impacted by their decisions. Now, what is uh, potentially controversial about my idea and what I think would be a great future research project relating to my idea is the extent to which I undermine one way of responding to the tragedy of the commons. So the proponents of libertarian property rights, or what's known as the economic theory of property rights, think that the best way to protect natural areas is to assign private ownership rights to them. Only if you give a landholder um, exclusive use to land, allow them to make their own decisions, however they see fit, will they manage the land sustainably. Will they protect the resources they're in because they will see it as having being in their economic interest to do so? So I can imagine proponents of that theory of property arguing that imposing guardianship on land management decisions will undermine the rationale of that. This is the known as the principle of internalizing externalities. Externalities tend to arise according to the, la- the logic of the tragedy of the commons because people have free access to the land. The logic of access promotes overuse. So we need private use, according to proponents of the economic theory, in order to promote wise use. I don't think, in comparison to existing environmental legislation, say a landholder has to develop a property vegetation plan, something like that, where they have to map the vegetation on their land or they have to provide a justification for their land management decision, <clears throat> I don't think the guardianship step is imposing that much more of a cost from them. So the argument that I'm imposing costs on landholders is not mine alone to address. Any environmental legislation, potentially, if you believe the economic theory of property rights, imposes a cost on the landholder. But society accepts that, thankfully, the world is not governed by libertarian property rights ethics. So what I'm suggesting is just an additional requirement on the part of a landholder. Now, I should say that if you, were, if you move to an indirect approach to property rights, and an indirect approach is just to look at property rights as a tool or an instrument to address a particular problem rather than something that animals qualify for or that that we owe them as a matter of justice then a lot of the problems that the economic theorists suggest that my theory will create don't arise. The system can be rolled out only to specific populations it can be rolled out um, in the least demanding fashion of all. Right? Instead of requiring face to face mediation with a guardian, it could just require kind of you know, addressing the concerns of a guardian you know, in a statement, say. Right? So if we look at this as just a tool, then the, the way that we implement it, uh, or the options are many and varied. Right? And indeed, I think that this way of approaching the The concept has a lot of advantages, simply because it allows for a pilot project. One progressive government somewhere may be willing to explore the idea as as an adjunct to existing kind of community consultation mechanisms. Um, And it can be rolled out with particular species um, that are highly valued, that it is uncontroversial that there is the political will to preserve. So the indirect approach, which moves away entirely from existing property rights theory and just looks at this concept as a tool to use, has advantages. Another advantage, which I mention in the book, is the there's a downside to the basic needs justification, which is the, the problematic species, so introduced species, for example. If the theory is based just upon an animal having an interest in using natural resources, and this interest being important enough to qualify for a right, well then exotic species or overabundant species, no less than the most endangered species, will qualify. So I think uh, that's going to be a problem that needs to be addressed for any future development of this theory. If we stick to basic needs or if we develop a lock in approach, there's nothing to suggest that, you know, exotic species won't be as productive as laborers as an introduced species. So, my pragmatism or the pragmatist approach that I assume in the book is driven as much by kind of theoretical problems associated with the concept as it is a concern to actually see it manifest in the real world. And, And I think There's been enough interest in it to think that there could be policy makers somewhere who are thinking about, well, this could be a different kind of a way to manage community consultation, in particular human-animal land-use conflicts. Instead of getting a community representing the ecosystem as a whole, you actually have specific species with representatives or specific populations. With your representatives
0: and I think one important aspect of the guardianship model that you propose is that these um, these guardians are only responsible for ensuring that the basic needs of these species or specific animals members of a species are met rather than ensuring that the continuation of those needs um, exists mm-hmm. so as you mentioned you know these guardians aren't aren't in charge of um, the perpetuation of a species um, That's necessarily well. but just just safeguarding or acting as stewards, you could say, for um, for the needs or the resource needs of specific animals in these in the territories that are demarcated by their their own behavior.
1: That's right. So as I as I suggest in the book, you know, this is not a animal rights theory as such. It's it's a theory of property rights for animals an animal property rights theory this theory could be incorporated into an overall theory of justice but that's not my uh, aim in the book the distinction between managing their relationship or managing their access to habitat and representing them preventing them from being killed or representing the continuation of their lives, also finds an analogy in the human guardianship situation. So often what you get with a cognitively impaired person is a financial manager and a different person is the medical guardian. So the medical guardian may make decisions about where the person should live, any medical treatment they may need, etc., etc., whereas the financial manager's focus is just on their property. So I'm taking that distinction there and saying, well, yeah, that's fair enough. You know, There could be people who are more skilled at talking about the animal's interest in the land and how they use it. Then there would be people who can defend and the animals from being hunted or from being um, culled. For conservation purposes. The person who would be responsible for defending them in that case would need to be on top of the ethical theory, would need to know arguments about the harm of death, would need to know about how to employ those kinds of arguments. It may be that the property rights guardian is also skilled at that, but I, I guess I think it's important to allow people who understand that relationship with their habitat best to represent them in that case. Now, as I say, like you know, it, it applies it in, in a conservation system as well. If humans want to, you know, if humans kill animals or they hunt them or they grow them for food or whatever, that's a question about the importance of the human interests and the relative value we place on animal lives. My theory is working on the idea that we accept that animals matter, that they have this kind of interest in habitat, that their habitat um, destruction continues to be a problem that puts species at risk, puts populations at risk. The existing system of holistic management is not working. So we need some kind of new approach to address that problem. Uh, One criticism of my views is that it opens you know, if if the landholder knew that they had a population of mammals on their land, they may actually kill them in order to avoid having to take part in this guardianship mediation process, right? The same thing was said about Indigenous artworks. It was not an argument to deny Indigenous people rights to their land, that they would someone would come along and destroy the evidence, namely damage the rock art or disturb their sacred spaces. Um, I think the same kind of reply to, in in the animal case applies, right? You have to presuppose that people act in good faith, that people are, are interested in addressing these problems seriously. You can't kind of shape your moral theory around the idea that that people are totally uninterested in ethics. There's no, there's nothing you can really say to those people. You just have to ensure that any particular laws are enforced or that you have to ensure that adequate consultation is done before it's implemented or that it's relevant monitoring, things like that. But, you know, insofar as killing a particular animal may have impacts on the habitat for other animals right, or related species, which is conceivable if we're talking about higher-order predators, then that would be an activity of interest to the Guardian. So the Guardian's focus is habitat and sometimes that may involve discussions about killing and whether killing is acceptable, but not as a general rule. I think the Guardian should focus on habitat management and we should leave questions about killing animals and the legitimacy of that to other parts of animal rights theory.
0: And um, and so what's next, John? What are you working on next? Are you developing this theory further or are you working on another project?
1: At present, I'm kind of working on a project about pain and the badness of pain. It's a bit of a departure for me because ordinarily I focus on animal stuff, but I have kind of done a bit of work looking at the badness of pain, but I want to kind of address debates about welfare, Mm. which are usually exclusively focused on pain, but look at kind of the broader ramifications of pain. So yes, while pain may feel bad, it's not the only reason why it might be bad. It might be bad because it interferes with your life in some way, or it might be bad that it kind of represents a, a blight on your life in some respect. I want to look at whether that kind of concept can be extended firstly to humans, but then also to animals as well. And in terms of the theoretical development of animal property rights, well, um, there's been a number of replies that I'm interested in taking up. Um, I think a lot of work could be done on particular kinds of legal instruments that may best be suited, that may help advance making the case for this kind of thing. There may be particular legal instruments, such as an easement, something like that, which is the best way to articulate this kind of theory. And also, I think there's going to be important debates to be had about how we understand animal mental states and and how we understand how they use the land as well. There's new ways of thinking about animal mental states, which potentially could um, force me to rethink what I'm doing on the in terms of how I solve the justification of this theory. But the project I'm working on now is kind of bringing together theories about concern and love, theories of pain, and theories about how we articulate our concern for others and, and the concern for their pain. And it's actually I'm arguing much broader than just to focus on feelings. It's more about impact in life.
0: Fantastic. So it ties into the book. No, thanks. Thank you. No, thanks very much. And as with animal property rights, I'll look forward to look forward to reading it. I think this book does an amazing job of providing a new framework for how we think about how we think about conservation, and I think it's uh, it's very important. So thanks very much for sharing your time with me. Uh, I'd just like to no close uh, with one final question because this is a podcast about environmental books. Um, I want to ask if there is one book that particularly influenced your thinking about environmental issues.
1: Yeah, so the book I would say is Practical Ethics by Peter Singer. In that book he talks about uh, Franklin Dam. The Franklin Dam is in Tasmania or was a proposal to log the Franklin River in Tasmania and animal rights has always been criticized for not uh, offering a way to protect individual trees and kind of holistic areas like how, how can an animal rights argument protect whole ecosystems if it's just based on suffering. So that was one of the questions I wanted to address in the book. But Singer kind of reinforces the importance of always coming back to psychology. And he says, you know, in response to uh, a criticism by an environmentalist who, who wants to you know, extend rights to trees, S- Singer says, I can, imma- I can at least imagine what it is like to be a possum drowning. But I can't imagine what it is like to be a tree with its roots flooded. And I think that kind of really hit home to me that the important thing that, or the, the, the most intuitively evocative way we can sell environmental protection is through the idea of suffering. Of course, we can at least put in our sh- ourselves in the shoes of species, so to speak, uh, who are at risk. So I'd say practical ethics by Peter Singer, I think it came out in the early 80s.
0: Thank you very much. Um, no worries. Thank you, John Hadley, for joining me. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. That was John Hadley, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Western Sydney, speaking about his book, Animal Property Rights, A Theory of Habitat Rights for Wild Animals. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join me again next time on New Books in Environmental Studies.